turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, just as we're turning there, uh, we'll just recap a little bit. Just on last week, we're looking at the life, the resurrection life of God in revival. And uh, last week, we just looked at the prophet here. And this is a record of his conversation that he had with God, where many of the other records of the prophets uh, would record their message from God to the people. This is a discourse between uh, the prophet Habakkuk and God himself. And this is just prior to the time when there would be a falling away, that Israel would go into apostasy, that they would be judged, they would be brought into Babylon, and God would raise up a judgment against his people Israel. And the prophet is seeking after the Lord, and the Lord begins to reveal his heart to him at this time. And then this is a prayer of the prophet the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 3. If we just uh, come to that, if you're there now, and we'll just read just verse 2, and this is his prayer. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known in wrath. Remember mercy. If you turn over into Psalm chapter 24 last week as we looked at that resurrection life, that life that refreshes, revives, revigorates, then this week, just in this one subject, and I say that reverently, the life of God in revival and this subject of holiness, uh, holiness that God is a holy God, and uh, we want to look at that by God's help this morning. But Psalm chapter 24, Psalm chapter 24. Praise the Lord, we know God's a holy God. He is a holy God. Psalm chapter 24, and we'll read from verses 3 through to verse 5. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in the holy place, his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart who hath not lift up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help as we come to your word for your anointing. Lord, would you speak into our hearts today and we pray in the name of Jesus that you would be glorified, that you would be lifted up. Lord, we just ask, Lord, you know every life and every heart in this room. We pray that you would speak. Speak with the voice that wakes the dead. Lord, we pray, would you show your mighty arm? Lord, would you save? Would you deliver? Would you set free? Lord, glorify your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When there is a manifestation of the life, the resurrection life, the power the revival power of God, the first most important thing that happens is there is an inward work ever before there's an outward work. If there's only an outward work, then it's a religious thing and it dies. The flesh, the arm of flesh, it profiteth nothing. So if it's just an outward thing, then it is just a religious thing and it brings forth death. But God's a God of the heart. God deals with the heart. Man will look on the outward appearance and make his judgment, but it is God that sees the heart and it is God that works on the heart by his convicting power, his holy conviction, to bring around a conviction into that life, a conviction of sin, revealing our need of Jesus. And then through a humble heart, when a heart bows the knee before the throne of grace, it's a wonderful thing to be born again of the Spirit of God, to be lifted out of the gutter of sin. But the first thing in revival that you will note when God begins to move by His Spirit is that there is an inward work in amongst the church of Jesus Christ. That's those that are born of the Spirit of God. Because God is a holy God. He is a holy God. Would you say amen if you believe that? We serve a holy God. The life of God is holy. It's the Holy Spirit, as we heard this morning, that works in the hearts of both the unsaved and the saved, the leaders and the guiders and the teachers, all things. The life of God is holy. Isaiah the prophet and also John the apostle received the wonderful heavenly vision of Christ 
upon his throne. If you look at Revelation, if you turn over to chapter 4 and verse 8, you'll also find this in Isaiah. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, it says there that the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. This is a heavenly vision of the throne. And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night. And what do they say? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is on his throne. These angels do not rest both day and night to cry. He is holy. This is the Almighty God, Jesus. God is holy. The river of God is the life of God. And in revival, one of the most precious revelations of this life is that God is a holy God. He is a holy God. He is a thrice holy God. The Bible tells us, if you look at these verses in Hebrews chapter 12, we'll look at this this morning, Hebrews chapter 12. You have your Bibles, follow me please. If you don't, you can listen. But Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, we're instructed here to follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Without which no man can see the Lord. So the life of God in the believer or a corporate church manifests a true holiness that is one of the most wonderful and beautiful attractions of Jesus Christ, that he's holy in him. There was no sin. There was no guile found in his mouth. But what's critical for holiness is it gives the church vision. Purity gives the church sight. The Bible here says in Hebrews 12 and 14, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man can see the Lord. Do you see how important it is? Without holiness, we have no vision. We cannot see him. In 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, if you turn over again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 7, the Bible says there, For God has not called us unto uncleanness, but on the holiness, we are called to live a holy life as believers, to live a life that's pleasing unto the Lord. Now we're living in a day, this is important because I believe there's, there's two errors when it comes to holiness. One is legalism and one is liberalism. Both have damned the church of its power. Both have liberalism or legalism. If we attempt to live a holy life without the grace and the enabling power of the Spirit of God, we'll fall in to, to a place of legalism when, it's, when we're trusting in ourselves, our own works, our own good efforts to try and live a life with all the T's crossed and all the I's dotted, we'll end up falling into a place of legalism and and ultimately come into a place where we question our own salvation because we're not living up to the standard. Thank God there's one man that made the standard. His name's Jesus. And so we're trusting not in ourselves, but we're trusting in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the enabling power. This is what grace is. The enabling power of the Spirit of God to live a life free and that is pleasing unto God, a holy life, not by our own works, but by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. We make a choice in that, to live that life in the victory and the overcoming life that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us. The other danger, which is coming more popular in the church, particularly in the hyper-grace movement, is Jesus has paid it all. You don't have to do anything. Live whatever way you want. That is unbiblical. It is not sound teaching. And we know this morning that the truth is this, that Jesus has paid it all, and there's nothing more that I can do. But we have a responsibility as being saved and because of our love for him to live a life not pleasing to the church or a set of standards in the church, but to please him because we love him. So we have to have a balance. And we see the errors of the church 
fallen into legalism, that you have to meet a certain standard. In some extremes, you have to have your hair cut a certain way. You have to have your beard cut a certain way. You have to wear certain things in order to reach a certain standard. Brothers and sisters, that brings us into death. But Christ has come to give us liberty, and it's an overcoming life. The other side of that is what we're witnessing around us in much of the church today where there's a complete liberalism to live whatever way you want, do whatever you want to do. And brothers and sisters, both of these things strip us of the life and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want a balanced approach because an unjust balance is an abomination to the Lord. And we can see why. So this life, this holy life, Paul writes concerning the last days of what will infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ, what will happen, what will come. And he writes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you turn there, because it's important because it's a warning for us. You don't have to be part of this. You don't have to get swept up in this. You can live separated from this. You can live a victorious life in the 21st century with all its advancement. You can still walk with God and overcome. But we have to be careful. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy and says, This know also that in the last days, perilous, perilous times, Perilous times will come. Remember that root word in there means it's going to be days. They're going to be hard to take. Going to be hard. You know, it's like hard to stop. It's hard to take what's happening this week. Do you not feel that, brothers and sisters? It's hard to listen to it. It's hard to to, to listen to the the tele. You know, I heard a leading one of the top sort of TV uh, over in England. Uh, their show was on and. I listened to his words to a a born-again believer, a doctor who was standing up, and uh, he was bringing out the the biblical case for man and woman, how God has created us. And the, the man said, he's one of the most popular ones in the UK, and he says, it's about time we get rid of you people. We just want you gone. We don't want this anymore. I'm a Christian. He said, I'm a Catholic, but we don't want this anymore. Just leave us alone. Would you go away somewhere? This is on national TV. And that is the hour in which we've come to. They're hard to take. It's hard to take how they're manipulating the government in order to bring in the legislations that we're going to witness that they're trying to bring in. We need to pray. We need to seek the Lord. We need to be on our knees. We have an answer to a broken world and a broken broken lives and broken homes. We have an answer, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so we have a, we have a responsibility. And, but we know that these days would come. Paul has told us the Scriptures. The Lord has warned us these days would come. We should not be shocked because the days are coming. It is a shocking thing. And so Paul writes to Timothy, he says, perilous times are going to come. And this is what happens now. Most... People are certainly, a lot of people would believe that Paul is writing to what's happening in the world. But actually, Paul is writing to what comes into the church in the last days. And this is what happens, and I believe it has happened to the Western church, not in total, but in some part. It says that men will be lovers of themselves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, they'll be unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent. That simply means that there'll be no restraint, not even amongst the people. There's no restraint anymore. Do what you want. Just enjoy your life. Do what's right in your eyes. It says to be fierce despisers of those that are good. They'll even within the broader aspect of the church despise those that make a stand for righteousness, make a stand for the things of God. Within the church, there will be, a, there will be an opposition within the body, within the church body in a general sense against those that say, no, we, we believe in the cross. We believe in the power of the blood. We believe in in the biblical account of creation. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We believe in the power of the new birth. We believe that Christ is the answer to all men. Brothers and sisters, we live in a day where 
we see that man, and even within the church broader sense, I'm saying this, of course, we see that that's not no longer enough. It's not enough. And so it says, they'll be despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And then this is why we know it's to the church or the church age. They'll have a form of godliness. There's a form about this that would seem to suggest that they're within the broader sense of the, the body or the church body. And they'll have a form of godliness. They'll have a Bible. They'll, they'll go to church. They'll do the things that you're supposed to do as a Christian. But here's the tragedy of what happens when these things come into the body of Christ. They deny the resurrection and the power of a living God. They deny that there's a power that sets the captive free because of the lifestyle that they're living. It's centered on self. It's when man becomes the central focus of the body of Christ, strips the power of the resurrection and the power of Christ to walk amongst us, to save and to deliver and to set free and to heal and, and to heal the broken and heart and the twisted mind. When we turn into ourselves, then we strip the church of its power and they deny this power. They deny the power thereof. And then Paul says, now Timothy, this is what he advises and instructs us from such turn away. We need to turn away from these things. We need to turn away from this system that will come. You don't have to be part of it. You don't have to live in it. You don't have to walk in it. You don't have to be part of this. There is a life that you can live, and that's a life of victory in Jesus Christ. For for this sort, turn away, he says, of this sort, they are creeping into houses, and they lead Captive silly women laden with sins lead, led away with diverse lusts. They're ever learning, but they never come to the knowledge of the truth. They have revelations. They have new doctrines. They have new ways. They have new methods. They have new ministries. They have new everything, but they never come to the truth. Can I tell you what the truth is? The truth is a person and his name is Jesus. And but we've got a new doctrine, we've got a new idea, we've got a new revelation, we've got a new ministry, and we're going down this cul-de-sac. At the end of it, it's a brick wall and it's death. But look on to Jesus and live this morning. It is Christ is the answer, the only answer. And so we make a choice in the hour in which we've come to. We're not there to stand and say, we're better than you or anything of that. We're here to say we want to live a life for Jesus Christ. And we want to live in the victory and the power and the resurrection life that he died to give us. And so we turn away. It will be because of these things that the power or the life of God will not be manifest as he would desire it to be. Paul is saying, Timothy, stay clear. We don't have to be part of it. But turn away. There's a life of victory. There's a life of overcoming. If we walk humbly with our God in these days, by the grace of God, he'll give us the enabling power that whatever the government do, and whatever man may do, and whatever the church may do, we can walk in the victory of Jesus Christ. Even in the 21st century. His grace is sufficient to live a life that's holy and acceptable to him. In that great revival verse in Second Chronicles, if you turn to it, I know many can quote it very easily. In Second Chronicles 7 and 14, this great revival verse, it says, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and I will heal their land. What does it say there? Turn away from your wicked way. My people, turn away from the wickedness of this world. Turn away from the things that you shouldn't be involved in, the things that you shouldn't watch, the places that you shouldn't go. Not in a religious way, but because those things will lead us to death and defeat. But turn to Christ who gives us victory and joy and peace. So we're instructed here to humble ourselves and say, God, Lord, we are in great need of you. We need you this morning. We need you to come. We want to seek your face. 
And God's saying, well, turn from your wicked way. Turn from the things that you know have come to bring defeat in your life. Could I say something? And just honestly, this morning, as a young Christian, you know, there was many things that continually would hinder me in that race. Things that I should have shook off. Things that I should have repented of and turned away from. And those things became a snare to me. And the enemy would use those things in my life to bring me down to a place of defeat. I loved the Lord. I was truly saved. I was wonderfully born again. But there were things in that early life as I was walking. I knew they came in. And they were like a chain and ball. And they would hold us and they would bring us to a place of defeat. And the enemy would use those weak points in our lives to bring us to a place of defeat. And somehow in a church gathering, you were afraid to step out and say, hey, I'm struggling. I'm not going to make it. I feel defeated. I feel the enemies jumped all over me. I knew it was my sin. I knew it was my own failure. But I want to tell you, brother or sister or young person in Christ this morning, the enemy will use those things, but Jesus will not forsake you. Turn to him. Turn from our wicked ways. He's able to save. He's able to deliver. His blood is still avails for you. There's still blood. You know, not just in the day that you were saved. But thank God this morning, the blood still avails this morning for me and for you. And there's power in that blood. The holiness of God. The first time this word holy is used in Scripture is with a man called Moses at the burning bush. The presence of God so saturated that place, that bush that was burning but wasn't burnt up. God appeared in that form. It was a picture of Christ, again, the pre-incarnate Lord. And at that place of holiness, that ground was holy, not because of how they shaped the building, how they dressed. It was holy because God was there. That's what holiness is. He's holy. And when that man stood there in that place of holiness, we see that there had to be the removal of shoes when God manifest his holy presence there's a removal of things there's things have to be moved things that perhaps are in our lives for a long time things that we've been battling with things that have been harboring in our heart things that are way deep down in the depths of our being when the holy presence of God is manifest some things have to be dealt with thank God it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance some would preach that really in the midst of all of this, we don't want the dealings of God. I believe God desires to deal with us in his mercy. I believe he wants to purify his bride. I believe he wants to sanctify his church. I believe he wants to bring us to a place of knowing this reality in a deeper way of the power of the risen Christ. Romans 6 and 22 says, But now being made free from sin... And become the servants to God. Ye have your fruit unto holiness. And the end is everlasting life. Praise the Lord. And now being made free from sin. We are servants to God. We're here to serve God. We're here to serve him because we've been made free from sin. But now you have your fruit unto holiness. The evidence in every move. Genuine revival is that there's a people raised up that are holy. That's the first thing you'll note. There's a lot of revivals, a lot of this, that, and the other all over the place. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you something this morning? The true indication of a move of God in an individual, in a corporate setting, or in a national move of the Spirit of God is people, rotten, wretched sinners like me and you, are made holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to be like him. His name's Jesus. And in him there was no sin, neither guile was in his mouth. When that moving of the Spirit of God begins to manifest itself, there is a purifying, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ to purge, to purge and to purify. The church in revival is essential for the outworking of God and saving and delivering power. We read the accounts of revival. And as I said last week, most of the time we start when God began to move in saving souls. But way before God does it on the outward, he's already done a wonderful work on the inward. 
There's a purging. There's a forging. There's a sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Sin can lie dormant for years, holding on forgiveness or bitterness, agendas, lust in hearts, besetting sins. They can go on for years as the church goes through its normal week-in, week-out activity. But then God comes. Then God comes. Then God begins to reveal to us really who he is. As Isaiah seen him on the throne high and lifted up, his train fell in the temple. And as the angels cried, holy, 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 then Isaiah the prophet got a revelation of himself. Woe is me. This, of course, this revelation of this pre-incarnate appearance of Christ is a wonderful reality to each of us this morning. And when we come to look at those pre-incarnate types or patterns of the Lord, particularly in the tabernacle, is where I want to look at for a few moments this morning. In that Old Testament tabernacle, the place where the glory and the holy life of God abode is Christ. The glory of God would come above the Ark of the Covenant at the cherubims at the mercy seat in that tabernacle, in that tent in the Old Testament. What a picture it was for his people Israel to have the abiding presence of Almighty God. Isn't it wonderful to be saved that he abides within? To know him this morning? To approach, of course, this tent, just to look at it for a moment. There was a tent in the wilderness, a perimeter fence. There was a gate, and as you went through that gateway, the first thing that you come to, really important, the first thing that you come to was the altar. You cannot approach God without going to Calvary. It's impossible. You can't approach God. But thank God for Calvary this morning. Because if God was to manifest His holy presence here without the blood, every one of us would be gone in an instant. To approach this place, the holiest of all, when you must through the gate, the first thing in approaching His holy presence or the holy place was the altar. Now, if you turn into Hebrews chapter 9 for a moment, just to read some verses here. An altar requires two things. This is crucial for an altar. An altar requires two things. An altar requires a sacrifice. But the second thing that an altar requires is a worshiper. As a worshiper. It requires a sacrifice and it requires a worshiper. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 6, in this Old Testament pattern, now, when these things were thus ordained, Hebrews 9 and 6, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. My brothers and sisters, thank God this morning that the way has been made and the revelation of that way has been brought to us by the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ has made a way for every human through him, through the power of the new birth, to enter into the holy of holies, the throne of grace. If you go on down the chapter there, it says in verse 11, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a great and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but praise God by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a half are sprinkling unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? A way, praise God, has been made, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, a sacrifice has been made. It is once and for all, and it is finished, and his name is Jesus. He is our sacrifice. Now, the purging of our conscience from dead works 
to serve the living God. Serving God in the power and in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can serve God in the enabling power by the grace of God with the life of God in you or you can attempt to serve God by the power of your own flesh. That's a dead work. It's defeat. It's despair when we're trying to serve God by our own efforts, by our own religious goods, but trying to present something to God. But God wants to purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In Ephesians chapter 4 and 23, it says that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, and the renewal of our minds, we need to get the right thinking. We need to be purged of dead thoughts and dead works because our minds are so cluttered with the things of the world. And it's dead works. And God said, I want to purge my bride, the church of Jesus Christ, from living for me in a dead way, but in the life and the power and the refreshing life of the power of the Holy Ghost. The old man, in order to put the new man on, of course, the old man must be put off. And that's where the power of the cross is essential in the life of a believer, not just to save us, but to live a life crucified to Christ. Paul said, I die daily. And so there has to be a putting off of those things of the flesh. It's not acceptable in the sight of God. God wants to sanctify us by the power of His Spirit. So not only is there a sacrifice, but also there must be a worshiper. And you know that Jesus told us in John 4 and 23 that the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That God is looking worshipers. True worshipers. It's not just something that we do before the sermon on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night. It's a lifestyle of worship. That word worship means to be prostrate before Him, to lay ourselves before the holiness and the almightiness of this Christ, to worship God. God is seeking worshipers, and does He find any here this morning? People that want to worship Him in spirit and in truth, not in dead works, but to be purged in our minds, to be renewed in our minds, to have the purging power of the Holy Spirit surge through us, to worship Him in spirit and in truth, and without fear, because of the blood of the Lamb, He's looking a worshiper. Something of the holiness of God and a revelation of that holiness. The Bible tells us that God's holiness, listen, whenever you may have in a traditional thought, but here's what the Bible tells us about the holiness of God. It's a beautiful thing. And if anything's beautiful, you're attracted to it. Isn't that true? If, if something's beautiful, you want it. You want that which is attractive. And so the Bible tells us that the, that the holiness of God is a beautiful thing. It's something that a believer should be attracted to. It's something that they should desire. Why? What is the beautiness of what is the beauty of holiness? Do you know what the beauty of holiness is? It's Jesus Christ. Because we can't approach God unless we come to Jesus. And so the beauty of this is that I, a wretched sinner, that was in the gutter of sin, a rebel, wretched up the here with sin, wretched and, 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 and vile and rotten. But by the grace and the mercy of God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, I can approach a holy God. That's a beautiful thing. Jesus is a wonderful thing. And he's looking worshipers that would worship him in spirit and in truth and say, God, this is amazing. How can I approach a holy God, a wretch like me? Surely it's amazing grace. That's what's beautiful about holiness. That's Jesus Christ. And 1 Chronicles 16 and 29 says, Give unto the Lord the glory that's due to His name. Bring an offering. Come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Holiness is not for us to be afraid of God. I believe there needs to be a reverence of God and a reverence for who He is. 
But praise God this morning through the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of his blood. It's a beautiful thing that when we can enter in to the very throne of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ and behold his glory. Just someone like me and someone like you has been saved by the power of God. Now that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing. In 2 Chronicles 20, 21, it says, When Jehoshaphat consulted with the people, he appointed the singers unto the Lord, and that they should praise the beauty of holiness. We should praise him. Isn't it a wonderful thing that anyone in this room is saved? And if you're not, by the end of this meeting, you could be wonderfully saved this morning. Just someone like me or someone like you. Sorry if, the, if we put it all on the same level, but the Bible says we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. But thank God that he lifted us out of the Mary clay. And this morning, by the grace of God, this holy God, that in the Old Testament, that God said, you put the boundaries around this mountain. If any man steps beyond that boundary, when I come down on Mount Sinai instantly, they will perish, they will die. And this morning, by the grace of God, that we can enter into the throne of grace by the blood of Christ, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. That's the beauty of holiness. Jesus Christ, and we are here to praise the beauty of holiness. That's Jesus. We're here to worship the beauty of holiness. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a beauty in it, and that beauty is the Lord himself. So an altar, of course, speaks of Calvary. The sacrifice is is Jesus Christ, and we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. We have boldness to enter to the Holy of Holies by the blood. We're justified by faith alone by the wondrous grace of the Lord, but immediately after the altar. So the tent, the perimeter fence, you go through the gate, there's the altar, speaks of Calvary. There's a sacrifice. It's the Lamb, Jesus Christ. There's a worshiper. For the worshiper to go any further before he got to the holy place, there was one vital piece of furniture between the altar and the doorway into the holy place. And that was... A piece of furniture called the laver, a basin, a large basin, brass basin of water. Now, this is important because it's, it's there's patterns and types here that we need to grasp and serve in the Lord Jesus Christ. That piece of furniture was instrumental for the priest to serve the Lord. Do you know the wonderful thing about the laver? There's in the in the tabernacle of Moses, there's no measurements of its size. You know what the wonderful thing about this is? There's immeasurable amount of washing can be done. There's an immeasurable amount of washing. It's not going to ever run dry. There's a fountain open in the house of David for cleansing for all. Thank God it's not limited. It's unlimited. The laver was a large brass bowl and its purpose was for the washing of the priest before the priest could enter into the holy place. It was after the sacrifice, but it was before the door. Now in this priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, their initial initiation, Aaron and his sons, this is important. If you turn to Exodus chapter 40, I want to show you a couple of things about this. Exodus chapter 40 and verse 11, speaking on these instructions concerning the labor it said, and you shall, Exodus 14, 11, you shall anoint the laver in its base, consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. So the initial, when you took the priesthood, the priesthood, which was the Levites, Aaron and his sons and his descendants, Moses would bring them and on their initiation to become a priest. Every priest had to be washed in total, from head to toe, you had to be washed. And then your clothes had to be washed. Then you had to be anointed for service. So the initiation was that you were completely washed. It's good to be washed this morning. And not just in the outward. It's good to be washed in the blood. Would you say amen? Are you washed this morning? Yes, I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's good to be washed. Amen. I'm clean on the inside. Might be dirty in the out. But praise the Lord. I'm washed this morning. And it's by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's no wonderful to be washed. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flood. What happens? Good to lose them all, isn't it? So initially they were completely washed from head to toe. 
They got washed. They were made ready for the service of the Lord. It says that you shall anoint them as you anointed your father, that they may minister to me as priests. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generation. Thus Moses did according to all the Lord had commanded him. So he did. Now, if you keep your finger, well, not there. We're going to go to Exodus 30 in a minute. But I want you to go into the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. Because these are important truths for all believers. The purpose of someone who's saved. The purpose of someone who's living for the Lord who wants to serve the Lord, this is really important. And whatever service, whatever capacity that's going to be. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, in the New Covenant, we are told here that ye also, that's everyone who's saved, as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. And then the Bible says, what are we? 1 Peter 2 and 5, we are a holy priesthood. So if you're saved this morning, you're part of a holy priesthood. We don't need cloaks and gowns and all the funny attire that men put on. Listen, this morning we are a spiritual people. We're a spiritual priesthood to offer up what spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God by the Lord Jesus Christ. We can do that. And the reason we can do that is because we have a high priest over this house. His name is Jesus. And we're to draw near with a with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Hebrews 10 22 says, and our bodies are washed with pure water. We've been washed this morning. We're washed. Praise the Lord, you're washed this morning. I hope you believe it. You're washed. Amen. It's good to be washed. But you're washed for a purpose. You're washed for a purpose. There's a purpose in God washing you. Never again in the Old Testament would the priest after his initial washing be washed in such fashion. However, every time he entered into the tabernacle and he came to the altar and went beyond the altar, he would be required to wash. But what would he wash? Exodus chapter 30, verse 19. This is important for service. These types and patterns are for us. Exodus 30, 19. It says, for Aaron and his sons, that's the priesthood, shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. So did you note the difference? There was the initial complete washing. Thank God you're saved. You're justified. You have a right standing before the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. No devil can take you out of his palm. Thank God we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You're justified this morning. But here in the service to the King, in the service to Christ, in the priestly service, they were to wash two things. What were they to wash? Their hands. What was the second thing? And their feet. It says when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister. Do you know, can I tell you something this morning? Say if you're saved, you are a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that? That's just not a title given to someone that stands at a platform. Do you know that you're a minister? And so the minister, it says here, when they come near to the altar and the minister, burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water. It's very serious, lest they die. That they'll wash their hands and their feet. So here's the pattern. The washing of the priest for service to cleanse him from carrying anything from the outside into the holy place. In other words, you're about to enter the holy of holies to minister before the Lord. What I want you to do is wash your hands and wash your feet. Because you can't carry dust and dust speaks of the world. You can't carry that in and then expect the anointing to be upon us, whether we're playing an instrument, whether we're leading in worship, whether we as worshipers, because we are all worshipers, are singing in the congregation of God, or whatever feed that we're in, if we really want to see the anointing and the power and the life of God, we've got to get washed. It's not to get you saved. You're already saved. You've gone past the altar. You've gone past Calvary. We'll never forget it. We always start at Calvary. But beyond that, the minister unto the Lord. If you're coming into the Holy of Holies, who shall ascend unto the hell of the Lord? But he that has what? Clean hands. Where's your hands been? 
And your feet, because your feet carry you places, take you to places maybe sometimes you shouldn't have went. Praise the Lord. I've been there. Thank God for his mercy. My hands have done things. My hands have done things since I saved that I shouldn't have done. My feet have taken me places where I shouldn't have gone. But I thank God that I can wash afresh in pure water, the Holy Ghost River, and I can serve him with clean hands and a pure heart. You see, if we are to serve him and enter in the first places of service is not what we put our names down on a piece of paper for, and I say that and thank God for all those who help us in every area, but the first place of service is at the throne of grace. The first place of service is approaching the holy place, is in our communion with God. The first place of washing before we do anything else is that we got to go into a place with God in intimacy, and especially in these days, brothers and sisters, when our closets are empty. And I don't say that this morning in any way to condemn anyone, but when the closet is empty, when the book is closed, when there's no communion, when we haven't washed and made ourselves ready and said, I'm going to spend time with the Lord. I'm going to worship Him. I'm going to minister before Him. I'm going to let Him speak to me. I'm not just going to give Him a list of what I want, but I'm actually going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to commune with the Lord. And then what happens when a congregation of people are in the place and they're doing that? See, when we come together, it's like heaven and earth. Because we're already in communion. We're already living for him. We've washed our hands. We've washed our feet. We've been in the right places. We've, our hands have stayed away from the things that we shouldn't. The only thing we should be handling is the word of God. And in the word of God and in communion with him. And God's looking ministers and he's looking worshippers to worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth has to be real. Has to be sincere. So we want an anointing and a revival. The wonderful news and revival power is when God's holiness comes, brings the deep conviction within the church. Thank God. If we only preach this morning that he's holy without the provision of Calvary, we would be men most miserable. Can I tell you there's an answer for us all? Saved. But the minister not only, or the priest not only ministered to him on the way back out of the holy place, he had to wash again. He had to wash in the way in, but he had to wash in the way. What does that speak of? It speaks of our service, not only before him, but our service to one another and our service to reach a world for Jesus. We need to be washed. We need the Holy Ghost. You hear? We need the Holy Ghost. Well, I could put my name down and turn up. Well, you can, but brothers and sisters, we need to be purged of dead works. We need to be purged of these things. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be washed. He's looking sanctified lives, separated lives, not in a religious way, but in the power of the Spirit of God to serve the Lord. Jesus said, husbands, Ephesians 5, 25. All the husbands get nervous. Husbands, love your wives. That's what Jesus, this is what the book says. This is what he inspired the apostle to write. Husbands, love your wives. It's a commandment. Love your wife. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, do this in the same way. Husbands, love your wives just like Christ gave himself for the church. That he might what? Sanctify, cleanse it with the washing. See that word washing? It means labor. That Jesus wants to sanctify the church with the washing. Washing of water by the word of God. The word of God cleanses that he might present to himself glorious church. Having not spot nor wrinkle or any such thing. But it should be what? Holy and without blemish. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Either the clean hands 
a pure heart. He's not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully. The Bible says he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. The cleansing, sanctifying power of God, the Holy Spirit, is essential in revival. There is no revival without the sanctifying, cleansing work of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. To purge the church from dead works and from sin, to wash her afresh, to renew her, to revive her, to raise her up in this hour, to stand and to shine the brightest and the darkest day of history, that she would shine because if we lose her light as we heard, but if the soul loses its savor, what is it useful for? All we have is religion. But thank God this morning, brothers and sisters, it's Christ. He is the life. He's the truth. He's the way. The cleansing, washing power of the Holy Spirit to purify the church. I wonder how many people, just in the depths of our hearts, say, oh God, would you do it in me? Would you do it in us again? Make us, make us fit. Make us an army of people that live for you and love you. Lord, would you do it? You know, we're in a war. That is for sure. What a war it is. Thank God that he's finished the battle. The devil's defeated. But we are engaged in a war. And you know, we are facing an enemy. Jesus called him a thief. Come to steal, to kill, to destroy. Brothers and sisters, so many lives are defeated because of hidden sin. Sin that's, I'm not here to expose sin, by the way. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm here to say, God, I need your help. Would you do a work in me? Because I want to work in me. But you know, we can hit that wedge in the tent. Everything's fine. Going on for years, no problem. But there's defeat. See, with hidden sin, there's defeat. Here's the deception of sin. Here's the deceitfulness of sin. And this is how the enemy works. You'll be okay. You can just live like that. And if you just do the outward thing, you know everybody's just do there, and then nobody really knows you're going to be okay. But see, inside you're living that life. Defeat. Not enemies playing away at that. I want to tell you, friends, Jesus Christ hasn't come to us to condemn us or leave us in defeat. He's come to give us life and power over sin. And it's a lie of the enemy. If you feel this morning that that's the way it is and that's the way it's going to be and that's the way it should be and I have to live a life of defeat and suppress sin, can I tell you the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses a man from all sin, not only of the sin but of the power of sin. Because if it didn't defeat the power of sin, brothers and sisters, we'd all be living miserable. But the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the new birth defeats the power of sin. That's why if the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. This morning, Jesus hasn't come, as we heard on the table, to beat us over the head with a stick. But he's come to say, my son, my daughter, you don't have to live in defeat. I've paid the price for you. Let me wash you. Let me wash you. Let me make you fit for service. Serve me. Thank God this morning for the blood. He wants holy people. People that are going to give their all for Jesus. Wash to serve him. We want to worship him this morning. The beauty of holiness. His name's Jesus. What a wonderful Savior. Let's pray together. Amen.